Well, here we are in Genesis 33, and um, as we make our way, we have a few kind of places where we're going to slow down, and we're going to um, drive in to deep into the text, and then we're a lot of places where we're going to actually summarize. Um, mainly those parts are when we're talking about the actual construction of the tabernacle and how many sockets and, and, and all, and I'm not saying it's not important, but the importance that it had to the first generation um, who got this information is not as important to us as we are not trying to build a tabernacle. We are the tabernacle of the Lord. So um, that just to prepare you, there's going to be some, some areas where we're going to summarize. But the common thread that I want to follow and theme this morning is the presence of God in the midst of Israel. And therefore, where is the presence of God in our lives? We're coming off the scene where they've committed idolatry and worshiping the golden calf, and everything is on the line now. Is God going to continue to be in their midst? Is God going to be present? We're going to find out that he will, but he's first going to examine the heart of the people and see if this is something that they truly desire. And the covenant will be renewed. God's presence is going to remain. And the project continues on to build the tabernacle where he will meet with them. So moving into chapter 33, we come to verses 1 through 6 where God's abiding presence is in question. Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, and you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it, and I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on ornaments or jewelry. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. So the question is, is God's guiding presence still going to be with Israel? Despite their failure with the golden calf, they are of a heart and an attitude when they hear that God's presence may not go with them, that they mourn over that. That's a good sign, right? It's a good sign, even though they had failed miserably with worshiping, entering into idolatry, and rebelling against the commands of the Lord, when they saw the consequence of not having the presence of God, this to them, verse 4, was bad news. Bad news that made them mourn. Bad news that caused them to lay aside their jewelry and just kind of get sober about what that really meant. Practically, the presence of the Lord is significant. Psalm 1611 says, you know, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are three things that all of us would want in the presence of God. Guidance, you will show me the path of life. Fullness of joy, pleasure. This is the heart and the mind of God is to bless you, to bless his people. And now for Israel, this is on the line. Now, the Lord offers, he says, listen, you know, I'll send an angel, not angel of of uh, the Lord as in a Christophany. They've already had that experience, but this is, 
This is an, an angel as in that angelic being. I will send, I don't know, maybe Michael with you would have been the guy. The angel that would have got the job description. But their response was, this is bad news. This is bad news. It was, a, it was a, a mighty, powerful creation of God who had never sinned in the, being an angel. But for them, they're like, no, no, that's, that's not okay for us. And I wonder if you were to ask yourself that same question. is If you could arrive at the goal, what's the goal? I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you victory. Well, if we're still going to get the goal... And we just have to have not God with us, but an angel instead. Well, at least we get the goal. What would be your response? It's like, well, okay, you can't win them all. You know, oh, well, that's too bad. We would have loved to have had your presence, Lord. But as long as you're going to bring us into the land, I guess that's good enough. For them, it was not good enough. He realized, Moses realized, without Yahweh, the promised land was worthless. Who cares? Who cares if you inherit this earth, but you lose your soul? Who cares if you get these blessings, but in the process, you lose out on knowing the Lord better? Paul, writing to the Philippians, chapter 3, looks back at a time in his life when he saw the opportunity to know more, but had to give up everything he had gained. We read, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things uh, but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Do you hear Paul's heart? I had it all. I had accomplished everything that a young Pharisee would want to accomplish in Judaism, but I threw it all away that I might know Christ. So the goals without Messiah Jesus were not enough. And he says, I, I, I counted them lost. And he says, and there, it's a pile of dung. He, it, this is not a, a bragamony where you wonder, are they really happy that they have left all of their sin? Or are they kind of like wishing they still had it? He says, listen, everything I left when I became a Christian, I gave up nothing. It's a pile of dung. Then I, and I can gain the Messiah and relationship and know him in a righteousness which comes through faith in him. I have won, but for him, it was the knowledge of the Lord. And so he would have said, as we're going to hear Moses say later, if you don't go, I'm not interested. Mankind had been sent out of the garden because of their sin. And the Lord had met with a person here or a family there. But now, here in the Exodus, God says, I'm going to be in your midst. I'm going to be among you as a people. You're going to come to this tabernacle of meeting, and I will meet with you there. There's something being restored. It's not the full restoration, but it's a big step forward. And now all of a sudden, that restoration process is in question. I'm not sure. It might just be an angel. I pray that you would not be satisfied, nor would I or any of us be satisfied with something, anything less than fellowship with the Lord. 30, uh, chapter 33, verse 7, Moses continues to meet with Yahweh. So it's a question 
of whether or not God's going to be in their midst. But what we read in verses 7 through 11 is that Moses continues to meet with them. It says that Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp. Now, that is not the tabernacle that all of this construction plans are for. This is just a tent, just a regular old tent. But this becomes the meeting place. So he goes outside of the camp, which is significant, because God's not said whether he's going to be with them. So he goes outside of the midst of them. And every time he went out there, he would go and he inquired of the Lord. But when the people saw him, they knew that he was going to meet with the Lord. Because that, that pillar of cloud, we read in verse 9, descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord talked with Moses. And verse 10, all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the tabernacle door, and the people rose and worshiped each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend, and he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. So as he went to meet with the Lord, they would see the glory of God descend on this tent, and they would know the, Moses is speaking with the Lord. And so out of respect and a reverence and an awe that God was meeting with them, they would all stand and they would worship at their tent door as they saw him go. They realized, we well, may not be in our camp, but he's really close. And so they were honoring and respecting um, this. Now, we read here that in verse 11 that he spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. But we also have read that you can't see the face of the Lord and live. And, and in just a moment... Um, here in, at the end of the chapter, he's going to ask to see the glory of the Lord. But verse 20, he's going to say, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Is this a contradiction? I think the answer is no. I know, I know the answer is no. And I think the solution is this. It's a, when, when we read about him meeting face to face as with a friend, it's a, fig, it's a figure of speech. That says he's not, he's not getting this through a dream. He's not getting this through a vision. He is having a personal conversation with the Lord himself. It's speaking of the openness and the friendship that took place, not the physical face-to-face -face encounter, because we're going to read again, he's going to ask for that. If he already had that, he wouldn't ask for it. And God's going to say, no, but I will do something else. So this is the way... I believe we should understand it, but we see that Moses is still meeting with the Lord. The Lord is still speaking to him. In chapter 33, verse 12, we read, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me your way that I may know you, and I may find grace in your sight, and consider that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Look at that. The presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. He's showing us the path of life. It's pleasures forevermore. But the other thing that we see here, as Moses petitions for God's presence, is that his presence equals what? Rest. Do you need rest? Do you need peace? The peace that surpasses all understanding is found in the presence of the Lord. The joy unspeakable is found in the presence of the Lord. Guidance through this life is found in the presence of the Lord. Verse 15, he says, 
if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Again, he realizes the promised land without your presence is no promised land. I've got, we have to have your, your, your presence, Lord. And then he says in verse 16, he says, we will separate from all the peoples of the face of the earth. And that was their sin when they began to worship that golden calf like all the other nations around them. They became just like the other nations. And so this is a statement of saying, we will be solely dedicated to you in worship. We will not worship other idols. And so as he petitioned God for his presence, and he says, I will go with you. He says, well, then we'll leave everything else alone. We won't touch any of this other stuff. Because the presence of the Lord far surpassed any other benefit they may get out there in the world. This is the point that Paul makes to the Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Oh, his presence. I will be a father to you, and you should be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 continues, Therefore having these promises, what promises? Fellowship with God. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Do you know what drives a man or a woman to set aside sin? It is the hope of meeting with God. That's what makes us holy. That's what gives us the motivation. Parents, remember this. As you raise your children, remember this. You want them to be motivated by the presence of God, not simply keeping the rules that you put on the refrigerator. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with putting the rules on the refrigerator. We've got rules written down for us too. But they've got to know and you've got to help them. And it's not the natural inclination of man to realize that I keep the rules that I might be able to walk in fellowship with the Lord. And so we've got to teach them. Well, why do we have to do that? Oh, why? I'm so glad you asked me why. No, you're not, but it's an opportunity. You want to know why? Here's why. Because we love the Lord. And we want to come out. We want to be separate. That we might have fellowship with him. We want to know him. Just like, just like Moses and the children of Israel. When they said, if you're going to go with us, we'll leave everything else alone. Because you are of such great value. I can, I can, I can do without all the people of the earth, Lord. You're of such great value. Chapter 33, verse 17 through 23, Moses requests to see the glory of the Lord. It's a, I love this. I love this section of Scripture we're heading into. We read, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. By the way, the grace of God. Hey, I, wanna, I want to have you with us because we deserve it. No, if I found grace in your sight. If I found grace, if you'll be gracious to me, then we'll know your presence. And the Lord says to him, he says, well, you have found grace in my sight. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. Verse 18, please show me your glory. So whatever he was experiencing in that tent, whatever he had experienced on the mountaintop, there was something more he was asking for here. He said, I want to see your glory. I want to know more about you. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. The glory of the Lord is connected with his goodness and is connected with his name. 
Think about this. He's saying, I want to see your glory. He says, all right, I'll give you, I'll show you my goodness, and I'm going to proclaim my name to you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand in the rock, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by, Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. You can see the trailing edge of my glory, but you're not going to see my glory in its fullness. And so he asks for this. He asks to see his glory. He says, I'll show you my name. I'll proclaim my name. What's in a name? The name of the Lord is the character of the Lord. It's the attributes of the Lord. It's not just a way to identify who who he is, which is often the way we use names. When the Lord speaks of his name, it is synonymous with my character. It is synonymous with my attributes. You want to see my glory? I'll show you my goodness. I'll proclaim my name. You see see how it's all beginning to connect? You want to know me better? You want to know more about my ways? That will happen. We keep on reading in chapter 34. In verses 1 through 9, God is going to answer this request, and Moses is going to see his glory. Uh, First, in verses 1 through 4, he says, hey, you broke those tablets when the children of Israel were sinning with the golden calf. Go cut some other ones and bring them up to me, and I will write on them. And then we come to verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. There it is again. Well, what is the name of the Lord? He's merciful, he's gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. This is just an amazing scene to me. I want to see your glory. And he gets to see his glory. And there may be in some of your, your minds right now, man, I wish I could see the glory of the Lord. You wish or you have? Because if you've experienced Jesus Christ and the gospel message, guess what? You have encountered the glory of God. I would, I would say, even let me remind you of 10 minutes ago when we were worshiping. Was there something about the character and the nature of God that just struck deep in your heart? As we were singing and lifting our voices and our hands and our heart to the Lord. Was there something that just, it wasn't just you mouthing the words, but it's like, oh Lord. You, you, you give me joy. You've been so good to me. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done in my life. Oh, wait a minute. You've encountered the glory of God. You've encountered the presence of the Lord, and your presence is what? The fullness of joy. And so I submit to you, as amazing and as wonderful as this encounter, and I'm going to prove it to you from the New Testament in just a moment, as Moses has with the Lord, it is not greater than your encounter with the Lord. He was one man out of the entire world that had this encounter. 
But every single believer under the new covenant gets more than what he has. Now you're like, I don't know about that. That's the problem, isn't it? We don't know about that. Why don't we know about that? What is it that keeps us from knowing that? I'm going to take you and I'll show you in the New Testament in just a moment where uh, this is not just a speculation. But let's talk about his name a little bit. He says, all right, you want to see my glory? I'm going to proclaim my name. Here's my character. I'm merciful. He is one who forgives the guilty and has compassion in relieving those that are suffering under hard circumstances. He's compassionate towards us. Almighty God, creator of the universe, is compassionate towards your circumstances. That's who your God is. Does he even know? Oh, he far more than knows. He's compassionate. He fills it. When Jesus walked this earth and he looked out among the people, it says that he had compassion. He felt it in his gut. They were sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion upon his people. He's gracious. Not only is he forgive our iniquity and fills for the things we go through, but he goes beyond that. He's gracious. That is, he bestows favor even though we don't deserve it or have earned it. It's by his grace. He's long-suffering. I love this. Do you know what long-suffering actually literally would read? If it was literally translated into English, long of nose. I'm not kidding. Really, long of nose. Like, what long of nose? Because the idea was an idiomatic expression of their day, just like we have them. And I'll give you an example one in just a moment. But a picture's one whose nose gets red and burns. So if the nose gets red and burns, you want that person to have what? A long nose. So there can be a long suffering. Like a long nose. Yeah, it doesn't, we don't really identify this, but how about this? He's got a short fuse. She has, she's so patient. She has such a long fuse. And we'll say this. Do we literally mean that they have a fuse that's burning? No, what we're saying is they're long of nose. So you can, I don't know, you can share that with one another. Honey, thank you for being long of nose to me. I don't know how that's going to go over. It might actually have a different effect. I don't know. But um, this is what it means. And God is slow to anger. He's patient with mankind. He knows who we are. He made us. And even more than that, Jesus came and he took on a body like ours that he might be a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness. He's long-suffering. He's abounding in two things, in goodness And in truth, he overflows with goodness. He doesn't just have a long nose that keeps him from blowing up. He now looks to overflow his goodness into your life. And he abounds in truth or trustworthiness. What's that? He won't quit on you. God's not done with you. Ah, just it's the last time. No, he's got a long nose. And he abounds in truth. He doesn't just kind of have a commitment to you, he overflows in his commitment to you. This word for truth is used over a hundred times in Genesis alone, and it refers to God's reliability and trustworthiness. Think God wants us to know that about him? 
Oh, yeah, so much so that when he says, I want to see your glory, he says, okay, here's what I want you to know about me then, Moses. You want to see my glory? I want you to know I'm not going to quit on you. Do you think that's relevant to the whole context of what's going on? It is. Because they're wondering, is God going to, is he done with us for what we've done? You know, Moses intercedes. The Lord is saying, here's my character. Here's my nature. I don't quit on you. Keeping mercy for thousands. And then he says that he's forgiving. But he then categorizes his forgiveness in three different ways. He says, in the New King James, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Or in wickedness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Wickedness um, is turning aside from something good to something bad. They had done that with a golden calf. He forgives rebellion. It's the idea of being a traitor. Think of Judas. Think of maybe even Peter and how he denied the Lord. And sin, a general term that refers to any kind of moral failure. But the next thing that he declares about himself is that he does not pardon those that continue in sin. And this, this is kind of a little troubling for us as we, as we look at this. Like, what does that mean when he says this? When he says that um, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Does that mean that a child will suffer for the sin of their parent or grandparent or great-grandparent? Is, that, is this the whole generational curse thing? No, it is not the generational curse thing. You want to know? Here, here's my commentary on generational curse. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Has anybody hung on a tree? Jesus hung on the tree. For who? For you. He took whatever curse there was in his body. You've been liberated. You've been set free. So what is this talking about to the third and fourth generation? Well, he says that he's not going to clear the guilty. He's going to visit iniquity. So if there's a lack of repentance, and what's in focus is really the idolatry that they had just entered into. And idolatry has a way of passing on from one generation to the next. And God is saying, I am, will forgive and I'll show compassion and I abound in, in truth and I abound in, in goodness, but I am not going to tolerate idolatry. I am not going to be okay with you sinning. I'll forgive it, but if you're going to continue on, I'm going to judge it. I'll judge it in your generation. And I'll judge it if your son does it, I'm going to judge it in his generation. And if his son does it, and if his son does it. I will never tolerate sin. I'm never going to be okay with it. That's his point. I am a holy God. So this is not some kind of capricious, I'm going to get mad if you sin and everybody in your family for the next you know, four generations is going to suffer. No, that's not what he's saying. But parents, we need to understand this. Our example has a powerful impact. When a family is raised in a certain religious belief, does that have a profound impact upon the next generation? The next, Yeah, I mean, families can tend to worship as their, their parents and as their forefathers did. So what our children need to see is us on fire for the Lord, enjoying His presence. And you may look at a certain action in your life and say, well, I know this isn't right, and I know God isn't happy with it, but I'm just will, I still want this. I, I'm just willing to bear the consequences. But you're setting an example for your son. You're laying an example down for your daughter. And maybe your granddaughter and your great-granddaughter and your great-great-granddaughter. Well, what are we saying here? 
Examples have a powerful impact upon family. And so maybe it's not for yourself that would awaken you today to return to the Lord and have nothing to do with those things that are causing you to sin. But maybe for your family, you'll be awakened. Oh, you've got to get to the place where it's about you. But maybe today this is how the Lord will get your attention. Do you want to be looking at your grandson, your great-grandson, doing the same exact things, granddaughter, that you've been doing? Well, then, then live out an example that will not be followed by the next generation. And of course, this love and grace is clearly seen in the gospel, isn't it? This is where we encounter the fullness of what this is being referred to. So, the next time you begin to think, oh man, I missed out on seeing the glory of the Lord. If I could only see the glory of the Lord. Maybe you have seen the glory of the Lord. When you've been touched by his patience or his mercy or his grace or his goodness and it's brought you to your knees and you've lifted up your hands and you had a tear come to your eye and you just, you've sung out louder because of what God has done. You are experiencing who God is. And to experience who God is is to experience his glory. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing stuff. Well, in a wonderful way, uh, in verses 10 through 28, the covenant is reestablished. He just tells them, in verse 12, you can see it down to verse 15, don't interact with the people of the land lest they be a snare, and you begin to worship their gods. Now, in verse 29 of chapter 34, we see that Moses reflects the glory of God. So he goes and he's going to see the glory of God, but then it's going to light him up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> I mean, so that he actually shines. Let's, let's read it. Now it was so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand when he came down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And everybody's like, eyes are big, eyebrows are raised. He's like, what's wrong with everybody? So when Aaron and the, all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, come over, what's going on? And Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the children of Israel came near, and he gave them as commandments all that the Lord had spoken to him with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Why? Because it was so bright? No. That's not why. We'll read in just a moment why. Verse 34, but whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out, and he would come out and speak to the children of Israel, whatever he had been commanded. Verse 35, and whenever the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, then Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. The point is this, they never saw Moses except at his shiniest, if you will. Then he would cover, and they would never see that glory fading. We're going to read this in the New Testament in just a moment. They wouldn't see that his skin kind of just going back to normal. So then he'd go in the presence of the Lord. He'd get lit up again with the glory of God. He would come out, and he'd say, here are the commandments of the Lord. This is what he wants you to do. The impact was, look how shiny I am. God told me to tell you to do this. You probably ought to do it. So it became a spokesman, and they could identify this amazing thing that was taking place. 
But do you know that you reflect the glory of God? Turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm only going to read two verses, but I really hope you guys will go home tonight and um, you'll talk about this or pull out your Bible at the restaurant and talk about this passage. Read verses 7 through 18. I don't have the time to go into it, but let me just read to you two verses, 13 and 18. Unlike Moses, so this is for us, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not steadily at the end could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. So the glory is passing away. So that's why he put his veil over his face. But look at verse 18. But we all, now some of us in here, all of us who put faith and trust in the Lord, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Moses went from glory to fade. To glory to fade. What is your experience with the Lord? It is from glory to what? So this is why I said, it sounded, I don't know if you guys all got that. Glory to glory, right? He went, we go from glory to glory. And, and that's why I could say, although Moses had an amazing, miraculous experience in the presence of the Lord that should not be diminished, yours is greater. Yours is greater. You don't ever have to put a veil on because you can be with the Lord at any time because you are the temple of the living God. He dwells within you. God has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. He didn't do that in the Old Testament. He's done that in the New Testament. The possibility for knowing the Lord and his presence in your life is wide open. So then the question is, and what is our experience? Because if we're not alone staring into the mirror of God's word, if we're not alone staring into the mirror of prayer and fellowship and communion with the Lord, if we're not staring into the mirror where we're going to see the glory, even in fellowship and coming to church, then we're not going to be going from glory to glory. But here's the great thing. We go from glory to glory. And as it says in verse 18, um, uh, uh, back there in Corinthians, is that we are being transformed metamorphosis. Our lives are being radically changed as we stare into the mirror of the Lord and we see his presence. Here's the good news. You want to overcome sin? You want to know the rest that comes for the Christian? You want to know joy unspeakable? You want to be guided by the Lord? You want to know the pleasures forevermore? Then you got to get alone with the Lord. you got to spend time with him. And as you do that and as I do that, This glory will happen. It will transform us. In other words, you don't change your life and dress yourself up by putting in more moral effort. You you will be changed. It's a passive verb here. The metamorphosis is not active what you do. It's passive. Something's being acted upon. How does that action come upon you? As you stare into the glory of the face of God. And now he changes you. Your speech gets cleansed up. Your mind gets cleansed. Your attitude, your selfishness, your greed, your bitterness, your unwillingness to forgive, your lust, your materialism. All these things are going from glory to glory because God is changing you, transforming you. A metamorphosis happens where? In the presence of the Lord. Not in more moral effort. Oh, there's a place to crucify the flesh. I'm not saying that. But I think 
we fail on this point so often is just to spend more time with the Lord. How amazing. I hope you'll go back and study more of this. Um, chapter 3 in 2 Corinthians. Chapters 35 and 36, I really am going to do a fast summary here. The preparations begin for the construction of the tabernacle. That's significant. Because before the Lord said, I don't know if I'm even going to be with you. Well, if he's not there, do they need a tabernacle? I, it's kind of a question I don't, it's a pondering question of mine. Well, if he wasn't going to be in their presence, there's going to be no Shekinah. He was not going to meet with them at the mercy seat. Do they even need this stuff anymore? But he says, I'm going to be in your midst, so you got to build this. you got to put the tabernacle together. In verses 20 through 29, um, he calls for a free will offering. And you see that in verse 21. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting for all its service. In verse 29, again, you see that they're bringing a free will offering. Um, and then as you move down into chapter 36... He says, you have to quit giving. You're giving too much. In verse 5, it says, They spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work of the Lord, uh, which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing for the material that they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, what does it say? Too much. What happened? Oh, they were having this wonderful deliverance out of Exodus. And then it seemed like it was all on the line. And God was saying, I don't know if I'm going to be with you guys. And when, as they realized that God was gracious to them, he says, I will be in your midst. I will be your God. Build this temple. I'm going to meet with you there. Their hearts were overflowing. You're going to meet with us. You couldn't restrain. You could barely restrain the giving because they were giving of a willing heart. And this is the way all of our giving should be. It's just an overflow of what God has done. The end of chapter 36, details are given for the tabernacle that include the curtains, how you actually put the boards together uh, for the construction of the tabernacle, uh, the veil that was to separate the two chambers inside, it were to be made of blue, purple, scarlet thread, and cherubim were to be artistically woven into it. And then they were to make a screen door, of all things, in verses 37 through 38. And so, construction's underway, which means fellowship with the Lord is possible. That's, that's the significance of it being given to us again like that. And I, I encourage you to go back, spend some time reading it. But as we close here, may we... Be content only with the presence of the Lord. If you could have the goal, the promised land, but not the presence of the Lord, what would be your response? Well, better than nothing. Or would it be, no, it's you or nothing. I must have you. Understand that we, under the new covenant, behold the face of the Lord and we go from glory to glory. Go behold the Lord. Behold him in fellowship. Behold him in the word. Behold him in quiet, prayerful meditation. Behold the Lord in our meeting today. Don't be led astray from the relationship you have. Be separate from all other things because the Lord is of such value that he is worthy of that separation. And may we all learn to walk 
and generosity. May there be an overflow of our life of worship, considering all that we have received from the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace, and your mercy. Thank you that you are of a long nose. You are long-suffering, Lord. That you understand our weaknesses. Thank you, Lord, that you bring your presence into our life. I want to just, while we're praying, I just want to ask, have you ever received the mercy and forgiveness and grace of God? Because if you haven't, the Lord is reaching out your, his hand to you today saying, come, I will forgive you. I will be gracious to you. Oh, no, God's, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Oh, no, he's long-suffering. He's long-suffering. He abounds in goodness. He overflows with this. He's merciful. That is not what he does. That is who he is. That is who he is. It's his nature to be merciful and gracious and long-suffering. Come to him. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to receive you through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a believer and you've had compromise, you've had a golden calf in your life, something that God has clearly told you not to do, and you've been walking in that, and you're just like, oh, well, it's all lost now. It's over. I can never earn back his favor. Well, you're right about that. You can't earn back his favor. But you can say, as Moses said, Lord, may I find grace in your sight? And the Lord says, oh, you have found grace in my sight. He's ready to wash you up, clean you up, put you on your feet, and get you going in your walk with the Lord. Don't walk in condemnation anymore. You know, the difference between condemnation and conviction is this. Condemnation says, you're a loser, stay away from me. Conviction says, you have sinned, you need to repent and come to me. If you hear the Lord saying, go away, that's not the Lord, that's Satan. But if you hear the Lord convicting you, saying enough of that, come near, that is the Lord. And that voice is always gentle, and that voice is always welcoming. Come to the Lord, come back to the Lord. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Amen.